ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to, would you believe it, season five, episode one of Straight Talking English. I am your host, as ever, Catherine. You can find me at straighttalkingenglish.co.uk. You can buy some books on straighttalkingenglish.co.uk slash books. They are called The Full Context. They are the proper history behind all of your GCSE texts. Well, all the ones I've done so far, there's like six of them, but there will be more. You can find me on Twitter, str8talkenglish on Twitter. You can find me on the old YouTubes. I've got a Straight Talking English channel. I think it's quite good. I make little films about context. So, just got to introduce season five proper. This is the Frankenstein season. We are going through Frankie. We are going through the gothic romanticism, all the important bits about our character, about our writer, all the great stuff. I am so excited and today I'm going to be telling you all about the Enlightenment. What is it? Why is it important to literature? Oh my gosh, that's actually a question that's taken multiple books to answer, but hopefully I will not do too badly. First up, big, big thank yous. Big thank you to Jimmy, our voice actor, who is playing Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and our voice actor Katie, who is playing Mary Wollstonecraft. If you like the sound of Katie's voice and you are thinking, dang, I wish I knew what that woman could do with a pen and a bit of paper, you can find her cartoons on Instagram. She is Katie Stotter, K-A-T-I-E-S-T-O-T-T-E-R. Ah, she is also the creator of Solo Jazz Machine. And if you go on to Redbubble slash Daughter, you can buy some stuff that has her beautiful pictures on it. I heartily recommend her Creatures of Lockdown cartoon series because it's a little bit, little bit brutal. Bit of an update on my book before I get cracking. The Frankenstein book is done. It's on the second draft. But then, sadly, my beautiful editor has got suspected coronavirus. So it is going to be delayed until she... She is fighting fit. I don't know when it will be out. We are hoping before Christmas. I'm recording this mid-September. Do not worry. Do not worry, guys. It is on the way. All right, all right, all right. So if I'm going to explain Frankenstein to you, I have to go back a little bit further. Technically, I could go back as far as the Reformation, when Henry VIII decided he wanted a new missus and dissolved England's place in the Catholic Church and started the Church of England. This brought up this tradition of dissent in the UK. We are going to listen to what other people think no longer we are going to try and do things our way. We could also talk about what is called the Glorious Revolution, when the king, who many people did not like, King James, was deposed by his daughter and son-in-law, Anne and William, in, I believe, 1699. We found a way to get rid of a king without it getting all head choppy offy. But, Ignoring that stuff, because honest to gosh, Roy Porter's books on this are tremendous. He has devoted his whole life to being a scholar of the Enlightenment. I cannot hope to do as well as he does. So, just saying, most of my notes today come from Roy Porter's book, Enlightenment. Surprisingly difficult to find on Amazon, because a lot of it is about Buddhism. (laughs) But I mean Enlightenment in the historical sense. 
we are talking about the period of the 17th and 18th centuries, broadly a time where science and philosophy evolved from something we would see as being like early modern Tudory into something we see as modern day. The idea that we as humans can make progress, we can improve ourselves, we can learn from classical sources, we can learn from our own experience and we can make the world a better place. Lots and lots of educated people were talking about this all over Europe. I'm going to call, I'm going to say enlightenment as kind of an umbrella term because it includes people like French philosophers, philosophers, includes great German thinkers. I'm mostly going to be focusing on our Brits today. So what is the enlightenment according to people involved in the enlightenment? This is where we hand it over to Immanuel Kant. Now this great thinker writing towards the end of the enlightenment period defined this whole age like this. He said enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-imposed bondage. He called it nonage though. Nonage is the inability to use one's own understanding without another's guidance. This nonage is self-imposed if its cause lies not in lack of understanding but in decision and lack of courage to use one's own mind without another's guidance. Dare to know. Have the courage to use your own understanding is therefore the motto of the Enlightenment. Laziness and cowardice are the reasons why such a large part of mankind gladly remain minors, like M-I-N-O-R-S, like children, all their lives, long after nature has freed them from external guidance. They are the reasons why it is so easy for others to set themselves up as guardians. It's so comfortable to be a minor. If I have a book that thinks for me, a pastor who acts as my conscience, a physician who prescribes my diet and so on, then I have no need to exert myself. I have no need to think, if only I can pay. Others will take care of that disagreeable business for me. Those guardians who have kindly taken supervision upon themselves see to it that the overwhelming majority of mankind, among them the entire fair sex, should consider the step to maturity not only as hard but as extremely dangerous. First, these guardians make their domestic cattle stupid and carefully present the docile creatures from taking a single step without the leading strings to which they have fastened them. Then they show them the danger that would threaten them if they should try to walk by themselves. Now, this danger is not really not very great after stumbling a few times they would at last learn to walk. However, examples of such failures intimidate and greatly discourage all further attempts. Thus, it is very difficult for the individual to work himself out of the nonage, which has become almost second nature to him. He has even grown to like it and is at first really incapable of using his own understanding because he has never been permitted to try it. Dogmas and formulas, these magical tools designed for reasonable use or rather abuse of his natural gifts are the fetters of an everlasting knowledge. The man who casts them off would make an uncertain leap over the narrowest ditch because he is not used to such free movement. That is why there are only a few men who walk firmly, who have emerged from knowledge by cultivating their own mind. When we ask, are we now living in an enlightened age? The answer is no, but we live in an age of enlightenment. As matters now stand it is still far from true that men are already capable of using their own reason in religious matters confidently and correctly without external guidance still 
we have some obvious indications that the field of working towards the goal of religious truth is now opened. What's more, the hindrances against general enlightenment or the emergence from self-imposed knowledge are gradually diminishing. So, basically, thank you Emmanuel, let's just pretend I interviewed him. In other words, this is the time where humanity would no longer be bound by superstition, by deference to authority. We as people are going to investigate for ourselves, think logically and rationally. The best way to investigate something, whether it's a scientific theory or a social assumption, is to collect data and draw your own conclusions. Think about all the times in Key Stage 3 Biology someone told you to grow crests and measure it. That's a very basic example of what we call empiricism. You are looking at stuff, you're drawing your own conclusions and possibly a little graph. The other side of this, the flip side of the coin, is rationalism. You trust your conclusions based on the fact you looked at it yourself rather than trusting someone else. Someone else in this Gisei 3 biology example could be another student or a teacher. But in terms of the Enlightenment, it's what the church tells you or what your monarch tells you. You are trusting yourself, you are trusting your own ideas. But if we're exploring things, if we're investigating things, we start investigating a bit deeper. We get these tremendous questions like, what makes the human mind? What is a human being? Like, okay, okay, we are never, we are never going to know the answers to these, like, ever. <laughs> but a lot of people were thinking about it. And a lot of these ideas about who we are, where we're coming from, what makes us, found their way into Frankenstein. I'm going to give you a lot of big names in here and just summarise them in the simplest possible way. We are straight talking English, we tell things as they are, but feel free to investigate a bit further. Big name who is important is David Locke, L-O-C-K-E. Frankenstein is described as a book that is Lockean, L-O-C-K-E-A-N, in terms of its philosophy. Locke believed that the mind is a tabula rasa, or a blank sheet until experience in the form of sensation and reflection provide the basic materials, like simple ideas out of which most of our more complex knowledge is constructed. The mind is a blank slate in terms of content, but Locke thinks we are born with a variety of faculties, physical, mental, emotional, to receive, and the abilities to manipulate this contents once we acquire it. Just like the monster, we are blank notepad waiting to be filled with ideas and mind maps and scribbles and that's who they make us who we are all right, all right i'm actually going with that because any therapist will tell you that the role of your childhood experiences is very very important but then other people would argue well where was my personality formed was i always born like this did my experiences change me well it's a good question it's a good question i mean I'd like to say that my experiences in childhood did influence who I am in the sense that I now study for fun, study and write for fun, as opposed to like when I had to do it in school, obviously that has influenced my decision to do this whole project and also my dislike of having to do PE because we had to do these five kilometre runs in the streets in public and it was heck and now I avoid exercise at all costs.
Let's next person, next big name is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. If you fancy some vintage scandal, by the way, read his book called Confessions. It's one of the earliest examples of an autobiography in which he describes how much he enjoyed older ladies disciplining him as a child and how that influenced his sexuality. So if you want some, uh, way too detailed descriptions of his thing for older ladies and uh, mummy figures go ahead that's mostly what i remember from reading that but jean-jacques rousseau wrote this novel that's like half novel half child rearing manual called emile this came up when i was doing the wordsworth episode the idea that a child should be raised by nature it should be surrounded by nature it should be sort of left to do its own thing We are born capable of sensation, and from birth are affected in diverse ways by the objects around us. As soon as we become conscious of our sensations, we are inclined to seek or to avoid the objects which produce them. At first, because they are agreeable or disagreeable to us. Later, because we discover that they suit or do not suit us and ultimately because of the judgments we pass on them by reference to the idea of happiness, of perfection we get from reason. These inclinations extend and strengthen with the growth of sensibility and intelligence. But under the pressure of habit, they are changed to some extent with our opinions. The inclinations before this change are what I call our nature. And the only thing I think of this is how much I like Chinese food. So apparently, as a tiny baby, I would always pester my parents to have a bit whenever they had a Chinese takeaway. And then I decided I didn't like it for about 15 years. And then I moved to China, and now I have this constant craving for noodles. Uh, So I assume Rousseau's theories extend to my love of noodles. So that's how our personalities are made. But what about our bodies? How are they created? Like, okay, we're born as a baby, we grow up. But how does our system fit together? We've got ribs, we've got spines, we've got lungs. How does this fit? John Hobbes, another philosopher famous for his book Leviathan had an answer to it. Hobbes said man was simply a machine, mere matter in motion. Thoughts and feelings were just jolts and reactions in the sense organs induced by external pressures and producing in turn those brain, those brain aves, I think he means avenues, called ideas. The imagination was the consciousness of ideas which lingered in the mind after the original stimuli had died away and memory was their recollection. So there's a lot of comparisons between machines and people. And if we look at the design of robots, yeah, we can see a lot of effective robots are built sort of similar to us in the sense they have like a hydraulic system, like our muscles. My partner was telling me earlier that there were some supercomputers in the 90s that were built around the design of the human brain. How cool is that? So I'm kind of with Hobbes on this one and he doesn't take a genius to see the link between Hobbes' view that people are basically machines and old Victor Frankie who decided to build his own. 
However, Hobbes didn't really make that up. We want to talk about Isaac Newton. He had already examined the universe and found these links between forces that were kind of mechanical. It's natural to extend this to think about how our own bodies are made. This idea of a human as a machine comes across quite a few times in Mary Shelley's writing, not necessarily just in Frankenstein, but it's something she took on board. Now, I'm going to introduce another thinker, but I'm going to come back to him in a couple of episodes properly. This guy is William Godwin. William Godwin is an important dude, not just because Frankenstein is dedicated to him, because he is Mary Shelley's daddy. He notoriously, (laughs) when his wife was giving birth and said, oh God, it hurts so much, he said, calm down dear, no need to bring God into it. I mean, that's the last thing you want to hear from your partner, isn't it? He is considered the big daddy, the OG of anarchism. As well as thinking about people and how we are ordered, people start thinking about how the government should be ordered. In 1793, William Godwin wrote an inquiry into political justice in which he made it incredibly clear that he believed all organisations, political, social, religious, are evil and should be peacefully dissolved. He preferred a society made up of individuals who were self-sufficient and occasionally asked each other for support. That sounds incredibly lonely not gonna lie i like to think i'm quite self-sufficient i lived on my own for five years but nice having a friend isn't it he said man is a species of being whose excellence depends on his individuality who can be neither great nor wise but in proportion as he is independent yeah the monster's chilling out on his own like okay i know he's called the creature in frankenstein he doesn't really have a name but i'm just gonna call him monster through sake of simplicity he is living on his own when he develops into this articulate being he's very godwinian in that approach we don't know to what extent godwin influenced mary shelley but we can assume you know dinner table conversation it's gonna be like hey children let me tell you some more about anarchy oh yes father tell us more about anarchy we can assume even if he didn't specifically sit down with an 18th century highlighter and go through a dad's work that it's linked leaked leaked and linked into that bad boy he is very important and he will come up a lot of times hence why i'm being brief on the old godwin today however godwin said we need to go through the world alone and that will make our society successful he also had some dodgy ideas about child rearing (laughs) again gonna come up with that one for Mary Shelley as well. He notoriously said children are a sort of raw material put into our hands, a ductile and yielding substance, which if we do not ultimately mould in conformity to our wishes, oh god he sounds great, honestly he sounds like some head teachers I've worked with, it is because we throw away the power committed to us by the folly with which we are accustomed to exert it. So mould children into anarchists. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's this kind of like, send them away, let their thoughts flow, see how that goes. But he seems to be very much 
pushing the idea of your children and your responsibility make them into little anarchists. But so far I've been talking a lot about dudes. The Enlightenment is dominated by men. There are a lot of ideas about what women should be doing which are coming from men. And the reason I'm returning back to women is because we have a female author, Mary Shelley. The big hitter in terms of Enlightenment women was Mary Wollstonecraft. She wrote Vindication of the Rights of Woman, despite being ever so slightly problematic today in terms of her views she is considered the world's first feminist a lot of the things that she said would now be seen as not necessarily that feminist things like you need to get married at the time she is groundbreaking she is trailblazing she lived in the 18th century when women's lives were restricted but wrote in favor of women's rights she was a teacher for a bit anyway and she spoke out in favour of boys and girls being taught together in co-educational schools. She believed in methods of teaching that were basically conversational, the idea of engaging your students and talking to them, and lots and lots of PE. She had this like really informal approach to teaching that was centred on the child and was so ahead of her time. Society at this point was based on privilege and inherited property, among the middle and upper classes anyway it favoured men. Women were not given these rights, not allowed to vote, not by a long, long, long shot. You weren't really given an opportunity to use your intellect in professorial, manager, managerial, artistic or academic roles. What was wrong with society was that women were in the role of convenient domestic slaves. They were denied economic independence. She wanted women to be trained for professions and careers in medicine, midwifery, business, farming, shopkeeping. This would free married women from the bitter bread of dependence and would enable mothers and widows to live and manage their own affairs just as rationally. All right, Mary Wollstonecraft, take it away! The conduct and manners of women, in fact, evidently prove that their minds are not in a healthy state. For like the flowers that are planted in too rich a soil, strength and usefulness are sacrificed to beauty, and the flaunting leaves, after having pleased a fastidious eye, fade disregarded on the stalk long before the season when they ought to have arrived at maturity. Perhaps the seeds of false refinement, immorality and vanity have ever been shed by the great. Weak, artificial beings raised above the common wants and affections of their race in a premature, unnatural manner undermine the very foundation of virtue and spread corruption through the whole mass of society. As a class of mankind, they have the strongest claim to pity. The education of the rich tends to render them vain and helpless, and the unfolding mind is not strengthened by the practice of those duties which dignify the human character. They only live to amuse themselves, and by the same law which in nature invariably produces certain effects, they soon only afford barren amusement. My own sex, I hope, will excuse me if I treat them like rational creatures, instead of flattering their fascinating graces, and viewing them as if they were in a state of perpetual childhood, unable to stand alone. I earnestly wish to point out in what true dignity and human happiness consists. I wish to persuade women to endeavour to acquire strength, 
both of mind and body, and to convince them that the soft phrases, susceptibility of heart, delicacy of sentiment and refinement of taste are almost synonymous with epithets of weakness, and that those beings who are only the object of pity and that kind of love which has been termed its sister will soon become objects of contempt. These pretty nothings, these caricatures of the real beauty of sensibility, dropping glibly from the tongue, vitiate the taste and create a kind of sickly delicacy that turns away from simple, unadorned truth. And a deluge of false sentiments and overstretched feelings stifling the natural emotions of the heart render the domestic pleasures insipid that ought to sweeten the exercise of those severe duties which educate a rational and immortal being for a nobler field of action. The education of women has, of late, been more attended to than formerly, yet they are still reckoned a frivolous sex and ridiculed or pitied by the writers who endeavour, by satire or instruction, to improve them. It is acknowledged that they spend many of the first years of their lives in acquiring a smattering of accomplishments. Meanwhile, strength of body and mind are sacrificed to libertine notions of beauty, to the desire of establishing themselves the only way women can rise in the world, by marriage. And this desire, making mere animals of them, when they marry, they act as such children may be expected to act. What the Enlightenment gave Mary Shelley was this solid background that she could be critical of. One of her mum's big books that she wrote upon the birth of Shelley, Mary Shelley's half-sister, Fanny Imlay. So Mary Wollstonecraft had a daughter with her ex-boyfriend, Scandal, and he was not involved in their lives at all. She had Mary Shelley with William Godwin and her half-sister, Fanny, who she considered to be her full sister. I'm not making any judgments about who decides who's their sister or not. Lived with them. When Education of Daughters was written in 1787, and this is what I mean by Mary Shelley being a product of the Enlightenment, she said, I conceive it to be the duty of every rational creature to attend to its offspring. I'm sorry to observe that reason and duty together have not so powerful an influence over human conduct as instinct has in the brute creation. Indolence, a thoughtless regard of everything except the present indulgence, makes many mothers, who may have momentary starts of tenderness, neglect their children. They follow a pleasing impulse and never reflect that reason should cultivate and govern those instincts which are implanted in us to render the path of duty pleasant. For if they are not governed, they will run wild and strengthen the passions which are ever endeavouring to obtain dominion, I mean vanity and self-love. This is pure enlightenment thinking, but take what I just said in the context of Victor Frankenstein. He claims he is a rational man but he ditches the creature who he has created he has a thoughtless regard of everything he is just like the monster is really bad i don't like him and runs away he is full of this vanity and self-love the enlightenment also was the engine driving the industrial revolution driving the science that was present in London that Mary Shelley experienced which drove her to write Frankenstein. Without the Enlightenment we have nothing. 
She is generally considered to be a romantic with a big R because that's what her husband is. But with two very, very famous Enlightenment parents, she can't really avoid it. We can argue that Frankenstein is actually a sceptical view of the Enlightenment. It can't be separated from the Enlightenment. It's part of it, but providing this like criticism this logical extension of enlightenment ideas to show its limits to show what might go wrong with the path that society is on if we place science ahead of everything then there will be disasters down the road it's also a legacy of the enlightenment as well as being like part of it and this like inside outside one foot in hokey cokey thing it's what naturally comes after it's what naturally finishes off the enlightenment is this okay i'm moving on from this i'm moving on from my parents legacy this is where i think we're at now i can see the flaws in it so that is how Frankenstein is connected to the Enlightenment in a very, very brief, brief nutshell. It is obviously a lot more complex than that. Like I said, Roy Porter's book on the Enlightenment is absolutely brilliant. He also has Flesh in the Age of Reason, which is tremendous as well. I recommend his work. But if you don't have time, that was the importance of the enlightenment in a nutshell thank you all very much for listening thank you thank you very much we have returned season five episode one big big props to jimmy and katie for being my voice actors today check out straighttalkenglish.co.uk you can buy my books you can listen to the back catalogue of my podcast or you can tweet me str8 talk english on twitter check out my youtube frankenstein book is coming soon i will be back next week to give you the flip side of the enlightenment romanticism have a great week i'll see you next week to be romantic (laughs) 